At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Are you thinking about starting a podcast but don't know where to start? Let me take a second to tell you about Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast across a plethora of listening platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all the big ones. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, completely free. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, do yourself a favor and check out anchor.fm or download the app to get started. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying Increase of Our Reality, I'd really appreciate it if you could drop a review or a rating and I'll give you a shout out on the show. While you're at it, come join the Telegram group and follow the show on Instagram and across social media. If you'd like to support the show, check me out over on Patreon for early access to Inquiries of Our Reality and Big Dumb Inquiries, which is the Swapcast show I co-host with Kyle Rainey of the Big Dumb Podcast. If you'd like to pick up some merch, come check out the merch store. If you want to help me out to upgrade my equipment and pump out even more awesome content for you guys, come donate over on Anchor or Kofi. And last but not least, if anyone is interested in being a guest on the show, sponsoring the show, has a topic they want covered, or you feel you have something to contribute to the show, send me an email at inquiriesofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. All the links I mentioned are in the show description. Just tap or click the Linktree link to be directed. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you, and I couldn't be doing this without you. Now enjoy the show. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality, one topic at a time. This is Inquiries of Our Reality with Shane Jones. Hello everyone, and welcome to the now 22nd episode of Inquiries of Our Reality. Today with me I have Chez from Chez of the Dead. How's it going, man? Oh, you know, great to be here. Glad to uh, be a part of the show. Glad you came on. I'm looking forward to this episode. Been looking forward to it. So to get going, man, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about what you do? Well, I'm a a paranormal investigator, researcher, adventurer. Um, I write for Paranormality Magazine. Um, You can find all my stuff at chazofthedead.com. I wrote a book about a case in Chile, UFO case. Lots of high strangeness and, and uh, weirdness involved there. And um, it's been, uh, I've I released it independently and it kind of took off in a way I didn't expect. And it's been a, a roller coaster ride ever since, but um, it's been a, a fun one. <laughs> and lots of uh, collecting lots of weird stories and trying to make sense of some of the, the strangeness around us. Well, I guess since you brought it up now, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you found out with your book? Um, so yeah, my book, uh, Paranormal Expeditions, Hunt for the Friendship. Um, it was a, uh, a, an investigation I did into this group from Southern Chile, Chilean Patagonia. Um, these tall, blonde, very much your contact E era type Nordic aliens. Um, and, you know, 
they most people claim they were benevolent they healed some people and things like that a little more research revealed that they also did some shady dealings there was counterfeit money involved in robberies and things like that tied to their um, association but their group was also always tied to these ufo sightings people who interacted with them um, would usually have a ufo encounter afterwards and many of them believed that these ufos were piloted by this friendship group um, so i went down there and uh, tried to uh, get in contact with them um, through various methods, uh, went to lots of Chilean UFO hotspots and things like that, did some psychedelic experiments and um, uh, even did a little bit of, of real journalism and went to some uh, Nazi bases, former bases and things like that and interviewed people there. Um, so it was a wild trip. Um, and it's, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, the, the essence I like to bring in my work. I like to do cases and things that are lesser known, not really talked about, um, you know, foreign places, um, African cases, South American cases. I really try to, to branch out and expand the, uh, you know, research knowledge that's available. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people, um, you know, there's this rumor out there. There's this map that circulates, and I think it's from MUFON. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> but um, I think uh, there's this map that circulates, and it shows that um, you know all of the UFO sightings occur in the U.S. and the U.K. And that's this common skeptic trope that gets brought up and you know dropped. And um, it's just not, flat out not true. They're, this is a global phenomenon. People all over the world um, are experiencing these these strange happenings, and uh, I, I just try to shine a little light on that. <laughs> so uh, another good thing I like to ask all my paranormal researchers that come on the show: um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about your most compelling cases? And considering that you said you research things that aren't typically researched, I'm, I'm more than interested to hear this. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So the friendship case was definitely um, a, a big one. Uh, going down and researching the, you know, um, Nazi connections, because they're in, in Chile, neighboring Argentina, there were a lot of weird groups that were tall and blonde and lived in remote areas right after World War II. Um, the friendship group, though, that was in the 80s. There's a lot of things that don't line up. They don't line up perfectly with any one uh, explanation, which is one of the reasons I, I took that case, because it was so bizarre, it represented all the possibilities that the phenomenon, you know, contains. Um, more recently, um, I've been working on a, uh, a theory slash case, not really sure how to, to qualify it, but it's been lovingly termed bee theory. Um, and the origins of bee theory happened to uh, probably six, maybe seven years ago now, um, when I was backpacking through Morocco, North Africa. Um, and I was, you know, still very much interested in my weird research and things like that. It was more in the hobby phase back then, but I had a little blog and I was, you know, collecting weird stories. And a friend of mine, I had met in Morocco, he introduced me to a friend of his, and this 
friends that, oh, I know someone you have to go talk to and, and interview this guy. Um, and so we set up this meeting. I met this guy in a roadside cafe and he had some of the wildest stories I've ever heard. He had a little bit of a twitch to him, you know? So I was kind of <laughs> like, oh, maybe this guy's kind of lost the plot, um, but really fascinating stories he had. And he said he was the, the son of a CIA agent. That's why he was living in Morocco. It used to be the uh, international zone after World War II, um, a hot spot of espionage up there by Tangier. And um, the weirdest thing he told me was that he, he, in fact, knew people who flew UFOs and that UFOs were based on technology reverse engineered from the honeybee. Um, and I, of course, I was like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's insane. <laughs> that's the crazy concept where it's a continuous thing that makes it so it can almost like float. Um, so that, that is part of it. So the way he broke it down was he said that there was an anti-gravity chamber in the thorax of bees and they somehow reverse engineered this concept, uh, and created UFO technology. And I said, okay, well that's weird. And I kind of just bookmarked it as a super weird story. And I met him a second time and there were some weird confirmations about, um, no, no like paper showing that his dad was a CIA agent, but there were like some assets and some things that were suspects where you're like, huh? how does a crazy guy have that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so there was some stuff that kind of gave a little credence to his story, but for the most part, I had written it off as, oh, crazy story. Um, and I had written about it in, uh, just in a tiny paragraph as like kind of a, you know, diatribe in my book. I was talking about Nazis and, you know, the Nazi bell, the idea that the Nazis had discovered this anti-gravity technology. And, um, I said, well, if it is just bees that are the source of this, then yeah, maybe the Nazis did discover it. And the bell kind of looks like the thorax of a bee, you know, you can kind of see that. Um, and it was maybe four or five sentences in this, this you know, section about Nazis um, in relation to that case. And I was doing another podcast a year after the book came out. And um, the host of that podcast was like, I read this book. And that paragraph jumped out at me because one of my close friends, when we were kids, his dad was a man in black. That's all he would tell us about his job. He was like a man in black, like in the movies, you know, something to do with aliens and UFOs. And that's all they knew about it. And when this man was on his deathbed, the son pressed him for more information. And the father would told the son, look at the bees. That's the only thing he would say further on the subject. And they had already, uh, they had always assumed that it was something to do with the way bees communicated, uh, you know, something like that, until he read that short little paragraph in my book. Um, and so that set me off on a, like, okay, well, now I have two totally shady, unreliable <laughs> sources, but I, I gotta look, that's a synchronicity. I gotta look into that. And, um, <clears throat> So yeah, the, the science behind bees is a little weird, which you kind of mentioned. They do this special um, fluttering pattern with this, their wings that gives them the extra lift to, to fly. Um, for a long time, it was believed that they were 
or it was kind of this mathematical mystery, I should say, that they were too heavy to fly. Um, their wings are too small and they're too blocky and it, it, it shouldn't work. But they've solved that supposedly with this whirlwind flapping pattern. Um, <clears throat> but then I discovered the research of a Russian scientist named Viktor Gurbinikov. And Gurbinikov was an entomologist. Um, he was a real dude. There's like a laboratory named after him in a Siberian town. Um, and he was a bug scientist. He has all these kinds of uh, discoveries about insects and special electromagnetic fields given off by their nests. And um, he's discovered the special larval stage of this jumping bug. Um, <clears throat> you know, serious bug scientist. And towards the end of his life, he wrote a memoir about all of his bug discoveries. And in one chapter, he writes about the flying device he created once. <laughs> and he says that he had the, the wing flaps of these heavy insects. And he wouldn't go into specifics, but he said he found them in a variety of heavy flying insects from um, bees to, you know, like those German cockroaches that can fly at you, um, to scarab beetles, any kind of those heavy beetles that fly, but supposedly had this special pattern in their, their wings. And when he stitched a bunch of these wing flaps together, he got these little blo blocks that he could tap with a pencil and they'd fly up to the ceiling and kind of float down gingerly. And when he strapped a bunch of these blocks together onto what essentially looks like a pallet with handlebars, like a pair of scooter handlebars on this, this wooden square, he said this device was capable of flight and not just capable of flight, but incredible speeds and um, super bizarre side effects. And the list of the side effects uh, is kind of what convinced me that perhaps something more was going on in this crazy story. Because the list of side effects he describes was the same list of um, similarities that I had written in my book, uh, the similarities between paranormal experiences and psychedelic experiences. Um, there's, you know, some of the obvious stuff, the viewing of strange worlds, right? People are abducted. They see weird planets and landscapes. Take a, take a big dose of mushrooms. You'll see some weird, <laughs> weird landscapes, um, missing time, the alteration of time. Um, that's something I've personally experienced in, uh, under psychedelics. You know, I thought I was doing something for, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. And then I looked at the clock and three hours had gone by. Um, I had a crazy know. story where I, uh, I've told it a couple times in my podcast, but pretty much I was, I was on some mushrooms. They were like talking to me in my head a little bit and I smoked two blunts or I rolled two blunts, smoked two blunts and came back inside. And somehow that was only 15 minutes. So I just had to drop that story <laughs> in there. <laughs> so there you go. That's the, the opposite effect, which awesome. <laughs> I, I would have loved to see that <laughs> as a witness. Um, but again, both of those, that, that kind of dilation of time is something, again, described in both ways with paranormal events. You know, um, I've heard Ouija board stories where people thought they were doing it for a few minutes and it was, you know, the next day. Um, and of course, alien encounters, you, you see it both ways. Travis Walton thought he was on that spaceship for hours and he was gone for weeks. 
for uh, or about a week. Uh, <clears throat> and then of course you, you have the classic, I was driving down the road and then suddenly I was closer to my home, but six hours had passed and I was only 20 minutes away. So you, you have these instances where time's altered. And again, similar as, as psychedelics. Uh, <clears throat> you have the, uh, one of the biggest ones for me is the reaction people have to both events. So people who um, have been abducted by aliens or encounter a, a spirit, um, whatever terminology, uh, whatever paranormal event, um, usually there's two reactions. Either they're terrified of it, it's frightening and it's horrible, or it's kind of this beautiful, they're here for peace and love and light and unity kind of experience, which are the two reactions people tend to have when they take a psychedelic. Good trips, um, bad trips. <laughs> right, you're right. You know, a lot of that, that unity, oneness, that most people who take mushrooms have felt that experience. Um, you know, even other LSD, um, you know, ecstasies essentially named after that feeling. It's, it's unanimous with, with drugs, but also people who are familiar with psychedelics tend to know someone who's had that opposite reaction once or twice. And I've, I've had that once or twice too, where it is bad. It's a bad trip. I think we all have. A bad, <laughs> right. A bad trip is it's, it's horrifying. It's a bad experience. It's, it's definitely not a, a good time. And again, those are the kind of reactions people have with the paranormal. Um, so Gurbinikov, Besides that last point, he listed all of those previous points and a couple others that lined up um, and said, when I operate my craft, like the areas and things around it, all of this stuff happens, like all the time dilation. Um, his example was he flew to his, one of his research fields, collected some samples of larvae, and he flew back to his, his lab and the larva was fully grown inside those test tubes and the two hours it took him to fly, something that would normally take months. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, he was like, that, that's pretty weird. Another one of these details was when he was operating this craft, you know, it, again, it was pallet with handlebars. No one, when people would look up and, and see him flying this, they wouldn't describe a little old man on a, a flying pallet. They described these glowing geometric shapes, triangles, discs, tubes. He listed off the traditional UFO shapes. Um, and uh, where he began to operate and land this craft, poltergeist activity would start in these areas and the buildings and things like that where he operated this craft if he dropped something off the side of it it would vanish and the area he dropped it over there would be little tiny holes perfectly circular holes that would appear in people's windows um, something interestingly enough that occurred during the mothman uh, case in the, the u.s these perfectly drilled almost like lasered in holes and in one instance, he found the drop test tube welded into a window, it was fused in. Um, and so all of these strange side effects and the fact that other UFO reports were coming in from around the world, Gurbinikov was like, well, clearly someone else has figured out this technology and they haven't gone public. 
So I'm just going to shut my mouth about it and put this away. <laughs> and, and that's that. I'm done with it. And that seemed to be kind of the end of his story. He died um, in 2001. And a lot of this information was being communicated through by his son to um, another researcher who ran this site, KeeleyNet. It's down now, but you can find it in the Wayback Machine. Um, and he was obsessed with all kinds of alternate technology, like free energy, zero point, all kinds of these, you know, conspiracy energy theories. And he was working heavily on this Gurbinikov, getting this information translated. And he also died um, and the website was shut down. So B theory kind of languishes in this, uh, you know, ether <laughs> where I actually had planned a, a trip. I've got um, like hundreds of pages of research of Russian cases, poltergeist cases, UFO landings and things like that. I was planning to go to Russia. I, I had a friend who was going to sponsor me and everything. But of course, for obvious reasons, those plans have been put on an indefinite hold. <laughs> so um, B theory kind of just, just uh, languishes out there. But it's definitely one of the more interesting things I've been working on lately, and I've, I've kind of stumbled upon the, the synchronicities that have led me to it um, have been pretty the, interesting. You believe the Mothman then is possibly somebody that also figured out this technology? Well, it's possible. The humanoid shape, um, you know, he was always described as having wings, but never used them. Um, it's potential. Uh, again, if B theory is correct, it's, it is something as simple as um, insect wings and things like that. I think it explains a lot of, of mysteries. I think, again, if you think about the pyramids, um, you, they have the deification of the scarab beetle in Egypt. You know, how do they lift those blocks? It was as easy as sliding a bunch of wing uh, covers under those blocks so, and they magically get lighter because of this, this anti-gravity effect then yeah, they easily could have discovered that. The Nazis could have discovered it and had their machines. The, uh, interestingly enough, in Aztec mythology, there's a story where Quetzalcoatl, um, he uses a cone, a seashell. Um, it's, in some translations, it's a seashell. Some translations, it's a trumpet. But he fills it with bees. And he uses this cone filled with bees to trick one of the other, the... Uh, uh, other gods of death, I want to say it's who's who's Oh, I just read the book and I'm already forgetting and butchering those names. <laughs> but um, he uses this device. And interestingly, uh, here in Florida, there's a location called the Coral Castle, um, which I don't know if you're familiar, but it's this weird coral kind of, uh, it's made out of this coquina coral shell rock, these hundred ton you know giant blocks and it supposedly was built by a single guy and he even moved it and the truck driver said he put it all on the truck by himself he wasn't watching but it was loaded up and it was unloaded by him and he no one knows how he did it um, <laughs> except for a group of uh, local children one night rode their bikes out and said he was using some kind of cone 
seashell shaped device to levitate these blocks. Um, so if this is the truth, if it is the secret, then yeah, you and I could build a UFO in our lab. And that, and that kind of, you know, explains a lot of the phenomenon. If it's really that simple, then yeah, a lot of it sure could be mad scientists or governments experimenting. Uh, Maybe just normal that, people that figured this kind of stuff out too. Cause even talking about like the, uh, the flying type machines that you would find in like hieroglyphs and stuff. They definitely mm -hmm. kind of had that structure. It was just a small thing with somebody sitting on it. So, I mean, that would, that would make sense if they figured out the technology and it's been rediscovered multiple times through history. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely a possibility. It's a possibility that fills in a lot of the errors when it comes to human explanation. When, you know, a human explanation is put forward, we always have these outliers in these cases where you're like, well, you know, we know this happened. Uh, Travis Walton, the fire in the sky case is a perfect example. He, he was missing. He vanished for seven days and all of his coworkers passed lie detectors. You know, they weren't lying. He got zapped by a UFO and vanished. That's what objectively happened. And four men in a truck and three of them all had the same story. Right. Um, and uh, no, it was more than that. I think it was seven uh, guys on that that logging trip that saw it and and were able to agree. Um, and during his time away, though, he describes seeing all kinds of weird aliens, human ones. I think there's a mantis in there, little grays. He gets the classics. Again, it's only a few hours in his perspective before he reappeared. But during those few hours, it's really weird and psychedelic. And so perhaps these psychedelics are just the side effect of being near one of these craft, as Gurbinikov kind of describes. Um, and so that kind of makes some sense. But it's bee theory, not only in name because of the bees, but it's also, I think, a secondary theory because it still lacks that explanation for a lot of things, um, for a lot of places. If, if they are based on technology and military crafts and those kinds of things, then it doesn't quite make sense that it's the global phenomenon that it is, that there, these things pop up everywhere and consistently, and they have these weird motives. It doesn't explain cattle mutilations. Why are, you know, things like high strangeness, those mantis beings and things like that on the travis walton's craft sure maybe the craft has a, a psychedelic side effect but clearly whatever's operating it they can operate on it so it can't all be psychedelic so with how do you where's the giant mantis coming from and and so there's there's these these issues where you know clearly something physical's happened um there's a great case from South America, the Corporal Valdez case. Um, he's one of these kind of reverse missing time situations where a whole platoon of soldiers, very similar to fire in the sky circumstance wise, a whole platoon of soldiers witnessed this. Their sergeant walked off towards a light that landed down the hill. He was gone for about 15 minutes. The light vanished and he was gone too. The light reappears for a little bit, flashes away, and they find him panicking, freaking out. But that's not just the weirdest part. The weirdest part is he has about a week's worth of beard growth when he was cleanly shaven, and his watch is spun forward a week. And he has no memories of any of this, but they 
take them back to the, the military base. They debrief them. They bring in a professor from the local university because they're like, what, what the fuck? We have no idea. Like, bring in a scientist is <laughs> literally their, their answer to it because they're like, the fuck do we do with this? Um, and again, something physical happened to that guy that seems beyond just a, a bee-powered craft. You know what I mean? It, it, again, Gorbinikov described that effect on an insect, but he didn't ever, he never said like, oh, I took a flight on, I came back with a full beard or, you know, I've aged a month in a day. Um, he kind of voiced some suspicions and fears that that might be happening. But again, there's, uh, there's no room to say 100%, like this is it, that is it. Uh, I do think, when it comes to UFOs, you know, a theory, the, the first theory is still, it has something to do with our consciousness and how our consciousness interacts with, with reality. These creatures, entities, whatever you want to call them, they, they sit at that edge of reality. And they may be different things. They may be completely separate. Whatever, whatever facilitates their appearance uh, in our reality has something to do with our consciousness and, and our chemical makeup. Um, that whatever that trigger is that allows you to see a ghost or a Bigfoot or a, a alien, that trigger seems to be the same. Um, so they maybe that being interdimensional on both sides of that also. Um, yeah, I mean, so Again, when it comes to the the concept of, of interdimensional, I, I think it's too far. It's, again, making the leap. Um, and that's something I, I talk a lot about when it comes to the paranormal is I don't want to make the leap yet and say that it's this or that. And that goes down to the even the basic stuff. Like I logically you know, someone hears a weird noise in a house and hears a, a disembodied voice. And so it must be the ghost of a dead Civil War era soldier. That, that's a jump. That's such a, a jump in logic. And the one I'm not willing to make. I agree something's weird's happening. I've experienced weird, you know, audio hallucinations with a group of people, heard children in a, a hotel hallway, I, I've seen UFOs with other people around. Like these things are clearly real. They have a tangible impact on our reality. But that doesn't justify making the leaps and bounds and saying that, oh, well, it's this or that. We can have theories, and there's definitely popular theories. Um, but popular theories are almost definitely incorrect <laughs> if they were correct this would be science you'd be talking to a professor not me <laughs> right <laughs> this wouldn't be any zach baggins would have the nobel priest prize if this was if that nonsense was real but there's there's room i think for intelligent and logical discussion because again these things are happening so let's take the the pieces of confirmable information, the, the happenings, and let's extrapolate as much information as we can. 
Um, you know, even B theory is again, it's a B theory because it works backwards and it should no, no good theory should work backwards. This one's just, it's too fun. It, it, and you know, <laughs> you gotta have good fun one. I haven't it. heard it before. Uh, it's a good one. It's, it's definitely when you hear UFO stories, I think it's an important filter to throw on a theory to consider because, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely a re push that these craft are aliens from a different planet and they're like coming to take over. And, you know, also there's this idea that the U S could never be outclassed in military technology. We spend the most money. Again, Gurbinikov was a Siberian scientist, backwoods Siberia, <laughs> tiny industrial town. Um, so it didn't, doesn't take a lot of money if B theory is correct to make these crafts. So I think, again, it puts, it keeps the human kind of perspective that there is a, a human element behind this at, uh, at the forefront when analyzing this, this kind of stuff. And I think that's important. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, statistically speaking, we don't know if aliens are real. We have, we haven't gotten one in a bag yet. Um, but we do know humans are weird, are real and they are weird and they do (laughs) weird things and they have plots and schemes and conspiracies. All, all those things are known to exist. So B theory, statistically speaking, if I was gambling, I'd probably put my money on that one. But when you take the evidence for what it is and work up and try to, to see what you can find from the base information that exists, then the again, the answer is not so clear. It's just flat out. We can't say what these, these things are. All we can say is that it's, it has something to do with our, our consciousness because it's, it interacts with us in a way where it, it compares to, again, these substances and other things that we know affect our consciousness and have the same side effects. So considering that information, do you, what's your view on psychedelic plants as far as if they make these connections, do you think that they have a personal connection to these specific entities? Well, a lot of the, the literature out there would suggest so. Um, you know, there's the, the spirit of ayahuasca and, and those kind of things that are, are almost archetypes in the psychonaut community, right? You hear about them over and over again. Um, I think peyote's got a guardian spirit as well that is closely associated with the, the plant. Um, but again, from a a logical perspective. I hesitate to, to make the leap um, and say that these entities are entities even. I almost prefer the, the terminology disincarnate information um, because what we know objectively about spirits, entities, whether it's aliens or ghosts, Bigfoot, to a lesser extent, he never seems to be that bright, um, but <laughs> they, they're information and they don't come from a computer. And as far as we can tell, they're not coming from a human mind. Now that doesn't completely eliminate that second possibility. We could just be um, 
you know, creating these psychic impulses and things like that, and just picking up on each other's beliefs and thoughts and ideas. And that kind of leads to tulpa theory, where, you know, most ghosts are generated side effects from, uh, you know, our subconscious desires and things like that. Uh, but again, good theory, but it's still top down. What we know objectively is that information can exist without humans and computers. And that is, as far as we know, that's what we call the paranormal. What is your personal experience you feel has the most proof for anybody that would say they're on the other side or they don't even believe that there is anything that is paranormal or supernatural or extraterrestrial? Um, that's a good question. And I think that's uh, a difficult question. I think the, the burden of proof for a lot of people is I guess coming from the most literal sense that you could think of, since you said you like to think of things in the most literal way possible, so that you can kind of say, speak to somebody that wouldn't necessarily even believe in any of this stuff. Well, I would, um, I would be irritating because I know exactly what I would say. Um, there's a great book um, called Making Sense of Nonsense by Dr. Raymond Moody. Um, and he's, uh, people in the paranormal might know him for, um, his past, uh, life research or life after death research. Um, uh, no, what's the word near death experience. That's it. He actually termed that, uh, <laughs> that word. And, um, that's kind of how he's known in the, the community. Um, but this book I think is by far its most important contribution because, it addresses the logical fallacy of there not being anything paranormal. And it's the idea that, um, well, first of all, we all think of nonsense as something that is negative, right? It kind of has this negative, we, we dismiss stuff as, oh, that's, that's nonsense. But actually nonsense is a very important piece of logic that everyone uses. Um, most people recognize it in religion right? A lot of religion is nonsense. So we, we can, let, let's be honest. And I'm not saying it's wrong and I'm dismissing it. I'm saying it literally doesn't make sense, right? The, God created the universe in seven days before he even created time. Like there's, again, there's, it's the same stuff you read in a Dr. Seuss book or a Lewis Carroll I would Carroll like to say that it, it was a lot of word of mouth for so long that a lot of it just got expanded so that it could be remembered before it got written down where I feel like there's a lot of truths to almost every religion. It's just a matter of if it was right. word of mouth, it's almost like playing telephone, you know, and you got to make it interesting well, if you remember the story. That, that's what's uh, one of the things Dr. Moody hits on is that nonsense is neither true or false because it doesn't make any sense. If, if something makes sense, then it can be true or false. But nonsense is neither true or false. But it does have the ability to transmute into truth. Um, right. And that's we can see that the best example is from alchemy to chemistry. Right. Alchemy started as made up magical words and occult ideas and things like that, that those made up words now are associated with real things. And it's it's science. Um, the the presence. So nonsense, not false or true, but has the potential to be true. Once we accept that and it's not a negative thing, then we can look at the other areas of nonsense, religion being one. It's something that doesn't make sense now, but it could be true. 
And that's, again, that's true for all of these paranormal theories, the tulpa theory, stone tape theory, the, you know, Christian Jesus saves the ghosts, demons in hell theory, which is probably the least likely to be true, but it (laughs) has the potential. It still could be true. But we also use nonsense in science. The Big Bang Theory, nothing exploded into everything. That, that sentence, break down that sentence, it's nonsense. It doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. doesn't mean it's not true, but it doesn't make any sense. And so it's we It's almost used... uncomprehendable by people. Like even right. if it was a theory, it's not something you, people could comprehend. Almost like the idea of something always being... Like, because we always think of everything as having a start or an end. So, right. Like a lot of, of quantum theory is, is nonsense, but again, not, I'm not saying it's nonsense, dismiss it. I'm saying it does not make any sense currently and it's unable to make sense. And you can't find a single human being on the planet who isn't forced to accept some form of nonsense in their, their worldview, because we just flat out don't have of the answers. And so whether that nonsense is, oh, I just believe in the Big Bang. That's the only piece of nonsense I believe. I think a lot of people, myself included, believe in multiple forms of, of nonsense to help understand what we, we have around us. And I, accepting that and studying that is uh, a wonderful thing. Um, and studying it from purely the logical sense is called philosophy, but studying it from the physical sense where weird things bleach into our reality and what does that have to do? These nonsensical things become physical. That's paranormal research. Um, the, the, it's really an extension of, of, of that. Is there a specific thing that happened in your life that got you into starting to research these things? So I like, I think a lot of people who get involved had a early childhood experience. Um, one night I was, <clears throat> um, my, my parents had just built these bunk beds and my older brother moved from this bottom bed to the top bunk and I got moved into the room on this bottom bunk. And one night I fell out of bed, woke up and a pair of red eyes was staring back at me from underneath the bed. Um, like almost like a Halloween graphic, like the classic kind of like pointed upward mm-hmm. almond flaming red eyes. So I hop back in bed, blanket over the head because, you know, then you're safe. And um, I like ride it out till morning. Um, and in the morning I, I wake up and I'm young, but I'm old enough to know that like, OK, well, that was probably an electronic toy or something underneath the bed that did that. So I start cleaning out underneath the bed and looking for anything that makes a light. And my older brother comes down the the ladder, sees what I'm doing and asks, did you see the eyes too? Without me prompting, without me saying anything. And this um, for me was kind of like, oh shit. Like I had already as a kid assumed it was, you know, technology or something like that. And my brother's not a, not a prankster. Um, and if he, he, unless I'm wrong, and this is the greatest pr- prank of all time going on 20 years now, <laughs> and I'm just, he's just waiting and sitting on it. He's never been a prankster. He's 
a pretty rational dude. It actually kind of had the opposite effect on him. He really stayed rational and became a scientist and wasn't really into spirituality until he, I made him take some psychedelics with me once. Um, <laughs> reopened, uh, reopened his mind a little. Um, but for me, it was kind of the opposite aha moment of like, oh shit, like even if that was like a shared dream, people aren't supposed to share dreams. I learned that in school. Like that's not real. That's something in movies. That's a fake thing. So how did we do that? How is that? You know, it was kind of the moment where I was like, oh shit, like weird, unexplainable shit happens. And it was, and I do actually tend to lean towards the shared dream idea because um, we didn't really live in a haunted house. That was like a one-off. I can't really think of any other haunted experiences in that house. Um, it, 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 just that, really. And so I kind of do lean that it was a shared dream, maybe a little tulpa we created being in a new room and you know being freaked out. Um, who knows? But that was the moment that I was like, oh, shit, this is there's something to this there's something something else going on here um yeah that thing could have been a shadow person possibly if you started following the shadow people theories yeah um so when it comes to like sleep paralysis and things like that i i considered it but i i was active man i fell out of bed i hit the ground you know i was awake and i i didn't have any of that paralysis or anything like that um, the, the red eyes are an archetype that show up again and again. Mothman um, had those classic glowing red eyes. Um, a case I've been working on in um, Jacksonville on Fort George Island. Um, they had an old plantation there and there's a legend of this pair of glowing red eyes, a former slave who was a serial killer and he was lynched by other slaves, a very suspect story. Um, but the, the legend is, and what people report is they see a pair of red eyes, you know, staring out of the, the trees and the, uh, that line, the Island. So it's, it's definitely a thing that pops up again and again. It definitely has that archetype feel like many of the shadow people, the hat man, the, the old hag. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if I'd loop it into that because again it wasn't a repeated experience a lot of those shadow people even the sleep paralysis you know standard it's usually something that happens repeatedly uh, again these eyes never showed up again um they they never popped up i've been looking i've been going to that island looking for red eyes looking at other places where it might pop up but um i haven't found them yet um definitely weird though uh definitely has that creepy vibe similar to shadow people have you ever done any personal research on any cryptids uh yeah i, I love cryptids um uh i did a lot in my book um in patagonia um just exploring the high strangeness in the, the general area where the friendship group um hangs out and i i think by my count, Patagonia has the largest number of aquatic cryptids um, in the world uh, as a singular region. I think it's something like, like 152, 53, if you count the native deity, aquatic deities as well, the number goes higher. 
Um, it's, it's super weird. Um, I love cryptids and I do think they represent that high strangeness aspect of the phenomenon. Uh, again, you have consistent uh, factors throughout all of these phenomena. Um, I think uh, researcher Jenny Randall's coined the Oz factor, and that's where like sound kind of fades out, that eerie quiet and that kind of like weird feeling. Um, it it kind of sounds similar to when uh, your drugs are just kicking it, <laughs> you know, that kind of like, ooh, that like zoom out um, and sounds get muffled and things like that. This is something that occurs in hauntings and Bigfoot and ghost cases and cryptid dogmen um, consistently throughout these, these encounters. Again, what there's this physical side effect that is occurring, you know, with our consciousness and inside our heads when these, these entities appear. Um, and uh, cryptids, I think, are particularly interesting because they, by and large, represent a more physical aspect of, of the phenomenon, where ghosts and aliens are more of that disincarnate information, where they're, they're communicating intelligence whether it's correct or not is a little iffy i would say 90 percent of 95 percent of the time the ghost slash uh ufo alien is just talking gibberish <laughs> it's just not true but of course we remember the instances when it is true you know thousands of years later and we still remember the oracle of delphi where she you know predicted that the king was i, I think doing surgery on a fish or something like that. I don't know, it was something weird. And she nailed it. <laughs> That's exactly what he was doing at that time. And there was no way she could have known it without touching some disincarnate information. Um, and so a lot of entities represent that. A lot of cryptids though, represent this more physical aspect. They, they show up, they leave footprints and scratches and things like that. And then they, they disappear. Um, and so I do think uh, cryptozoology is definitely one of the, the more intriguing fields because it does have that, that impact. So besides the bee theory, what else, what other theories or what other, say, beings or entities or whatever you want to call them, do you think has the most tangible evidence behind it? Um, so I, I definitely think the, the UFO field is the most exciting right now um, when it comes to uh, getting, you know, the attention it deserves. Um, you know, I think most people now accept UFOs as a reality. Um, you know, there something's up there, something's going on. Um, and, you know, having the government admit that has, has, you know, confirmed it for a lot of people. Um, it's, also disconfirmed it for others so there's there's that too it's made it less credible in the eyes of some which is is an interesting uh side effect um but uh i think there's still this gap of understanding um that's going to be uh, a bit of a challenge to to overcome and it's the same gap of understanding that i think has held us back in a lot of fields you know, in the, the 60s and 70s, they thought we'd be all flying cars and, you know, nuclear powered bicycles and all that grand dreams were, were achievable. 
but we we've kind of hit a wall because again we lack the understanding to to make sense of, of a lot of this nonsense it's the same issue they've come up with in quantum um, experiments is that we as observers have an effect on the experiment so how can we experiment it on it objectively without affecting it and you can't and and so that kind of conundrum is kind of holding back a lot of people from acknowledging you know ghosts and bigfoot and things like that in the same realm as ufos um the ufo one again the, the reason <laughs> it's being acknowledged is pretty clear is because there's a military budget angle to it <laughs> there's yeah, someone in the Someone in the military is like, I bet we could get a couple thousand dollars more if we <laughs> work on this UFO shit. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it turns out to, to blow open the, the same situation. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting development, whatever occurs in that field. Um, as for what provides more evidence than that, I still love a good poltergeist case. I think um, when you have things moving on their own and it's just, it's something that happens. And again, cross-culturally, I wrote a whole um, dossier on Russian poltergeists as part of that Gurbinikov research. And I found cases all over Russia and, um, you know, interesting cases like you know, a lot of times you uh, here in the U.S. and the U.K., we like to, the, oh, it was in this old historic cabin, this historic building. These ones and a, a couple of these ones in Russia, two of them stick out in particular because they're in Soviet era, like apartment buildings on the like eighth floor corner. And like they're like just these gray boxes and like they're not like your typical like ooh, a spooky haunted house. And it's, it's clear, again, that this phenomenon is a side effect of, of consciousness. It has something to do in particular with children. That seems to be a trigger. Um, again, that's consistent in the Russian cases as it is in the UK and the US cases. Um, you know, having a young, particularly daughter, but so, sons as well, um, puberty age seems to be when this activity is at its at its peak and again information's communicated and a lot of times that information is like legit real information and one of these russian cases um the foytma case um they were getting like letters of gossip about like people around the building and around the town they were being like oh fucking tom's sleeping with jim's wife and you know tammy's a dumb bitch <laughs> like it would say this stuff and then they'd be like oh a couple of days later they'd be like oh tom and tammy are getting a divorce because because you know that gossip was true um and so it gets these pieces of of accurate information other times it gets pieces of information that are, again, nonsense. They're intangible, just gibberish. Um, uh, I, one of my favorite cases is Jeff the Talking Mongoose out of the UK um, because it's, he, he appeared as a talking mongoose, so it's very silly. Um, and I heard this one yet? <laughs> yeah, and he was a little bastard. Um, 
Like he would send them on treasure hunts and things like that in the middle of the night. And sometimes they would find treasure. And other times they'd be like, we dug under that rock, like six feet under the rock. We didn't find anything. And he'd be like, yeah, you fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, that's Norton, as you can tell, that's how I talk. But Jeff, that's an actual quote from Jeff the Talking Mongoose. He would talk like that too. He would literally be like, you fucking morons. <laughs> you dumbasses. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a rude little asshole. Um, and it, it's one of the cases where it really encapsulates high strangeness. Cause again, like a lot of the best poltergeist cases, police officers witnessed this, you know, local officials would come over and neighbors and there were scores of people who'd be like, yeah, things were flying around and we heard the voice and a couple of people even saw the mongoose. Um, and so these things are real but they're nonsensical. You know what I mean? It's not the same spooky demons at every single house. Sometimes it's a talking fucking mongoose. And again, what does, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> but by collecting and analyzing these stories, what we can say is that these pieces of information aren't, they're not demons like, you know, the church tends to, want you to believe they're they're pieces of information and a lot of them are have this weird dark kind of tone to it but a lot of the most of it the large majority of it is weird mundane nonsense and where does that information exist where is it coming from what capacity does it have all of that remains to be questioned but answering that question in poltergeist cases is going to be the same kind of question that the military is going to have to try to answer with these UFO and alien cases. Because again, there's a, a disconnect between the physical phenomenon, something leaving a physical impact, and then the information surrounding that, that phenomenon. So considering that that was kind of an interesting story, definitely one I haven't heard before, uh, what other stories have you been researching that I probably haven't heard before? So I do have a, a project coming out soon about the Bet Sphere, um, which was this large metal sphere um, found in Florida in Jacksonville in 1974. Um, this family found it on Fort George Island, same island with the red eyes. <clears throat> um and they took it to their home, which is this bizarre castle-esque structure, um, the, the Neff House, now called the Betts Castle, um, because of this, this weird story. And they thought it was maybe like a cannonball or some, you know, old, you know, piece of equipment or something. But it was a shiny metallic ball, and they, they put it in the, the son's room, and one day he was playing guitar next to it and it started to hum and vibrate and then started to move around the house on its own, rolling around as if intelligently controlled. Um, and so interestingly enough, the Navy decides the Navy um, has a station right down the road from this Island Mayport station and they hear about this, this ball, it gets in the news, there's video of it, um, a local radio show host sees it, 
go to the edge of a table and stop right on the corner and like dangle in a way that defies gravity. And so the Navy's like, well, let's, let's investigate this. And the woman who owned this house, Jerry Betts, um, she was a very enterprising woman, especially in the seventies. She had a real estate company and a trucking company. Uh, and she was no, you know, chump. And she wrote up a contract made the Navy sign it saying, if this isn't your technology, you've got to give it back to us. And so the Navy did some tests. They found some weird stuff on the first round of tests. And then on the second round of tests, they were like, oh no, it's just a regular metal ball. But they really didn't want to give Jerry back the ball is from reports of people who were friends of the family. They supposedly um, Jerry said that when they returned the ball, they got a call at the house and the guy returning it, who had been the guy they'd been, you know, talking with and liaisoning with um, he, it was for him. And so they gave him the phone and all they could tell is he was getting chewed out on the other end. They could hear, you know, screaming and yelling and he, just a lot of yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. From the, the guy there. And then he begged Jerry to give him the ball back. Um, but she was like, nope, you signed the contract. It's not yours, then it's mine. <laughs> and so she <laughs> held on to it. Um, and then J. Allen Hynek, uh, one of the fathers of ufology, he investigated the sphere. Um, it was brought to a panel in New Orleans, but there was some weird shady stuff that went down. There's a couple versions of the story, but um, Terry, Jerry's son, was separated from the sphere under like some weird circumstances. Um, one version of the story is they got an emergency call from Jerry. And so they flew him back right away. And when he got home, Jerry was like, what are you doing here? Like, where's the ball? Go back to fucking New Orleans and get it. Like, there's no emergency. And so they thought the panel was, you know, trying to deceive them. And so they kind of like shut down talks with this, this UFO panel. But J. Allen Hynek later visited the home and stayed with uh, the family. And there's a lot of talk out there that he wound up with the ball because his kids remember playing with the metal sphere in their basement. Anyways, the weird kicker to this story is that um, through the research I did, I uncovered that the Navy in 1952 at that Mayport station had a UFO incident where several people were buzzed by a UFO right over the, the airfield, right across the St. John's River from the island. So they were already a little weird on UFOs. And then in 2015, um, two of those famous Navy UFO videos um, there's the gimbal video and that's the one of that saucer that's kind of rotating. It's the most famous, um, photo of UFO out there right now is from that. If you stuff. Google search it, it'll probably be the first one that pops up for anybody that doesn't know what it is. Absolutely. Looks like. And that's, uh, for anyone not familiar, that was the New York times, big story releasing the, these UFO videos, Tom DeLong from Blink-182 helped get them released. There was a whole, whole kerfuffle. Um, that video though, and one of the other ones, the go fast video, which interestingly enough shows a tiny, that's well, relatively to the other one, a small metal sphere 
and it's hauling ass over the ocean. It's going really, really fast. Hence the title go fast. Um, and they're using this camera, this observer, uh, this um, stealth camera. It's meant to pick up objects and, you know, for reconnaissance and they're trying to pick up this sphere and they miss it and they miss it and they finally lock on. And yeah, it's this little sphere and it's just going, going, going um, and possibly fast right above the water. And these two videos of the rotating saucer and the sphere going were filmed on the same day. They were filmed by the, um, <clears throat> I believe it was the Roosevelt, um, the USS Roosevelt aircraft carrier. They were doing training missions with France and they were stationed at Mayport right there um, off of Jacksonville's coast, right where 40 years prior that metal sphere was found on that island. Um, and that's fucking bizarre. <laughs> it's bizarre. very bizarre that this 40 years later, we have a video of a, a metal sphere moving on its own impossibly fast over the waters that again, are right next to this Island that border this Island. Um, so, a very strange, um, uh, case. Um, and I'm wrapping up a, a project now, um, a book about it um but uh yeah and it's it's definitely a weird one i spent some time in the bet's house um it's abandoned now and it's this old abandoned castle on a hill it looks something right out of a, a horror movie uh, <laughs> but, and i did some some sneaking in there and um yeah i, I broke some rules but uh it's for a good cause because we're allegedly uh, allegedly we're, we're hopefully going to get the the house recognized as a historic landmark and get it included um in the list of historic landmarks that are already there on that island so um follow my projects if you want to be a part of that and um, the petition will be going up soon so um we can always add it into the information at the bottom too if anybody wants to find that link yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a couple weeks away from the, the project fully launching, but um, I'm at the part where I can talk about it because I'm um, no longer allegedly breaking the law. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows. No, uh, I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> no, they, they didn't have any comments for me anyways. They redirected me to a, yeah. Uh, so I did several times try to investigate the house legally and I was denied at multiple turns. I even got some like travel channel people with film crews who wanted to do it. And I was like, surely they'll say yes to that. And they said no too. So I took matters into my own hands, allegedly, and <laughs> <laughs> went in there and, and, and conducted a investigation and tested out some weird technology um, that supposedly attracts these spheres. There's a, a theory out there by one Patrick Jackson, um, who uh, thinks he's solved this sphere ghost paranormal conundrum. Um, again, it's a very top-down theory. I'm not convinced, but it, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, and again, that's what this, this uh, field's about. It's about interesting stories. And that's um, this is what we're left with. It's what we have to make sense of, of this bizarre nonsense is we've got these, these stories and these ideas and 
Um, the best we can do is continue to, to share them and try to make sense of them together because, you know, the more the merrier. It's a group effort to, to find these answers. So you said earlier that you did some paranormal investigating too. What's your most uh, tangible story that you've seen yourself as far as like paranormal investigating goes? So interestingly enough, um, a few years ago, and this is what really put me on to the psychedelic theory, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the idea that the, the phenomenon is related through consciousness related triggers. Um, I was doing a series of experiments with uh, my Ouija board, my trusty Ouija board, um, while I was on mushroom teas. And I did this over successive weekends, um, you know, thinking, oh, this will be super spooky. Something spooky is definitely going to happen. Um, and nothing happened. <laughs> there was no events during these. I had some good trips. I had some classic psychedelic side effects but like no EVPs or any weird letters or anything like that. But in the times right before and in between the experiments, I started to see UFOs. And the one that like cemented it for me was I was hanging out with a friend talking about these experiments and he was like, okay, sure. Mushrooms, Ouija boards, UFOs, <laughs> whatever, dude, you know, you fucking lost the plot whatever man <laughs> I was like yeah all right fair enough when, when you say it like that you, you got me um and we're kind of laughing it off when we hear this metallic hum and um sure enough this triangular shaped craft a light in each corner one of these classic uh ufo i think they what there's a blueprint out there labeling it the what is it the b113 or something like that Mm -hmm. um this triangle shaped craft it right above the tree line i mean it was low i could have hit it with a rock it was low to the ground and it kind of just hovered over us for a moment and continued on and you know i i had seen some weird lights and things in the sky but i had never seen something i would have called a craft before before that day and my friend again not involved in any paranormal research or anything at all um, not involved in the experiments, wasn't taking psychedelics at the moment. This was in between two, two of those experiments. That was the only UFO he's ever seen. And he was like, fuck man, that's a UFO. Like there's, a, there's no other words for that. And it, again, it felt almost intentional. Like we were having the conversation and we were laughing off my, my other, you know, sightings because of the strangeness of them. And they were like, no, 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 no. This is real. <laughs> it, it felt almost intentional. Um, and so for me, that is what kind of convinced me that something more psychic is is at foot than just you know aliens from a different planet are visiting and then ghosts from the 1800s make weird noises sometimes and then you know bigfoot's just the guy living in the woods <laughs> you know <Nuts>. like, <laughs> right and again i kind of had those opinions about um those ideas i had heard this psychedelic theory before and having taken psychedelics i was like yeah maybe but i don't really see the connection there and then i did this experiment and i was like well shit <laughs> <laughs> not really any other way you can interpret that one huh 
Um, cause it, it was, my intention was, I want to have a ghostly paranormal experiment experience. And the phenomenon was like, Oh, you want that oh, here? Here's a curveball. have a UFO instead. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's, uh, been curving me ever since. <laughs> so with all of your knowledge and your research that you've done, what's your best theory of this plane reality planet, whatever you want to call it that we live in. So I lean towards a theory, um, posited by well it's been posited by many throughout the ages but dr robert lanza does a good modern interpretation of it um he calls biocentrism um and it's the idea that um biological life is a cornerstone of reality that reality isn't just rocks and dust and particles that it only exists some when it's observed. And I, I tend to believe and lean towards that, that if there wasn't, um, you know, it's, it comes down to that old adage, if a tree falls in the forest, doesn't make a sound, no one's there to hear it. And of course, we're all taught in school, yes. And the answer in biocentrism would also be yes, because a tree is a living thing and there'd be animals and all kinds of things to, to hear it vibrate. But if a, a stone pillar falls on a planet with no atmosphere and there's no life in a billion light years in each direction does it make a sound no absolutely not there's no eardrums to be vibrated there's nothing to vibrate the air there's no air to be vibrate there's no sounds so in that physical reality doesn't that sound doesn't exist and so the things we take for granted reality the solid atoms and particles around us, they are completely dependent on our observations. And now that's not to say we don't have to share that observation with everyone else and all other biological life forms. We're all trying to share an agreed reality. And sometimes people spin off into their own non-agreed reality. And so it's, um, again, it's not a perfect theory. There are no perfect theories. They would be facts if they were. Sure. Um, but I think when it comes to, you know, our role in reality and when it comes to these paranormal experiences, I think that it, it heavily hints at there being some truth to that, that concept that without our brains interacting with the particles around us, then none of it exists. Uh, as, as far as your research goes, what would you say is the most compelling story that you've seen physically yourself? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, seeing them physically is, I guess, a matter of, of subjectivity. I've had a lot of, I do a lot of like ghost hunts and things like that. I get some weird EMFs and things like that, but none of that really does it for me. Um, yeah, I know I've, I've got colleagues, I'll call them out there who definitely get pieces of evidence like that and are hyped and they're like, look at this, we definitely solved something like that. But for me, it's more about understanding a, a larger picture. It's more about, um, kind of like the, the Betts case. I think the, um, recently that's definitely the best example being able to be the one being like hey 
you guys missed this. <laughs> this video <laughs> takes place in the same spot that 40 years ago, another one of these spheres was found and was moving around on its own. And the Navy was investigating it. So again, the Navy 40 years later comes out with a video in the same location of one of these spheres traveling over the ocean. Um, it's super bizarre. And there's, it's, it's, a bigger picture thing. And the reason people have missed it is because they they zoom in on this, oh, well, that's a UFO. I wonder what it's here, what it's doing. It's clearly visiting right now in this moment, but it was also visiting 40 years ago. And who knows how long ago it was visiting before that. That island's been inhabited um, continuously for thousands of years. It was inhabited by Timucua natives um, who had a variety of holy sites there. Um, it was also the first place that the French Huguenots, the first French settlers in North America, landed on that island. The first Protestant prayer in North America was prayed on Fort George Island, the same place where all of this bizarre UFO stuff occurs. And so there's this massive history of strangeness on a location like this that kind of gets overlooked. You know what I mean? The, the video is a military objective and oh that was just some weird family in the 70s and they're they kind of stand alone when really there's the, a, a big picture and that's kind of the the research i like to conduct i love going in the field and doing that stuff because it's fun um it's you know intriguing it's definitely the you know heart blood of the paranormal community. It's where the stories come from. They originate as people going out there and experiencing it. Um, but it's, uh, if you're, if you're thinking about getting into this and you want to go fight ghosts on the weekends and you want to, you know, find a Slimer and do the whole Ghostbusters thing, you're going to be a little disappointed. Um, and, any, any team or group who sells you anything that says you aren't going to be disappointed is selling you a lie. It's just what it is. It's a, a field where the majority of people are hobbyists and that's awesome. That's how I started. That's how everyone starts. And it's fun. Ghost Adventures is a fun TV show. I love watching that stuff. I love that kind of content. It's fun, but there's there's a, a difference <laughs> there's a it's a stepping stone it's the first steps to really observing this phenomenon for for what it is and the the high strangeness that surrounds it um limiting it to you know oh i heard a, a weird thing one time and that i've got a, some awesome uh spooky stories like that there was one incident in a hotel. Um, this was like a, like a Marriott or something like a, not even a old spooky hotel, but we were telling these ghost stories, me and two friends. And this was like a, a school wrestling trip. And we were telling these ghost stories. And one of our friends, she had some great spooky stories this whole life. She's had weird things. She's telling this story the whole time we hear these, kids running up and down the hallway they're like bouncing a basketball or something banging on the walls very loud very part of the the background noise and you know we're telling spooky stories and getting kind of creeped out and they're like oh shit it's time to go to the 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 um tournament next door 
And so we go to the door and the second the door knob turns, the sound stops. All the kid noise, all, everything's silent. We open the door and there's no one in the hallway. And all of us were like, what the fuck? That was, <laughs> that was fucking bizarre. That was weird. Absolutely. And so we go down the hallway and we get into the elevator and we're in the elevator and the, we're waiting for the door to close and it's staying open for longer than it should. And clear as day, we hear this voice whisper, Tori, which was the girl's name who we were with, who was telling all the spooky stories. Clear as day, this like weird raspy voice. And we heard it. Oh, ooh, still gives me goosebumps. Very strange, very weird. Um, but um, again, even if I had got it all on a voice recorder, you're not convincing anyone with that. You know, it's not proof. What, what does it prove? The Marriott is haunted in Lakeland, Florida? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I doubt it. Um, it's, it's, again, these pieces of information, um, they're awesome. And the, the job is to collect them and do your best to analyze them, but really collect them put as much as you can together and pass it on to the next generation. And that's, you know, that's, that's what you, what I'm in for. Do I think I'm going to get a, a big foot in a bag or, you know, a jar full of ectoplasm? I hope, I hope <laughs> I get that smoking gun evidence. I'm always looking for it, but in order to really find it, you've got to have that brutal objectivity and be like, eh, no. <laughs> and uh, it is, it's the, it really is the, I want to believe, like I really do. But the reason I'm good at this is because I constantly have the little guy in the back of my head being like, that's bullshit. That's, that's nonsense. That's not real. And it, it happens every time I'm on a ghost hunt and a ghost investigation. I love doing it. It's the best. It's a lot of fun, but there's always a moment where I'm standing in an abandoned building and like the creepy weirdness goes away for a moment. And I'm like, this is, this is silly. <laughs> this is a goofy, what I'm doing here is pretty goofy. This is a ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but looking at it from a rational standpoint though, that definitely makes the evidence a lot more convincing for people that don't believe in it. Cause the people that watch like ghost adventures, every time they hear the noise, they're instantly like, Ooh, that's a ghost. Like those people mm. aren't nearly as convincing as somebody who's a, who's a skeptic themselves and they're still researching it. Yeah. And um, again, I'm not uh, by a skeptic standpoint, I'm definitely not a skeptic. You know, I've had too many weird experiences and I'm open about them that they instantly dismiss that, uh, that kind of thing. You, and we see that now with skeptics with these UFO videos, the goalpost is constantly moving where they're like, that go fast video in particular, the debunking is that it's a weather balloon, classic UFO. <laughs> always debunk. a weather balloon. Uh, always a weather balloon, swamp gas weather balloon. And the idea that these trained naval pilots who were doing training missions, they were there pretending to fight France in this naval mock naval battle. They can't tell the difference between a fast moving object and a slow moving weather balloon. It, that is, it, it's, it's ludicrous and it's offensive. And so you, you can do the research objectively because you do have witnesses and things like that that are really good. You have these people who are just telling their story objectively. And 
in uh, the age of the internet, in an age of data, we can find these trends and these things that start to make sense. Decades ago, all of this information was separate and weird niche UFO journals and amazing stories, magazines, they were mixed in with fiction and things like that. But now we have ways to, we, we have sources, we have data banks, we have all those old documents uploaded to the web where people, independent people can go and scour through this information. And if you have the drive and the determination, you can find these trends and these links and these places that people have forgotten and investigate new things and new ideas and continue to, to contribute uh, to the field in, in more meaningful ways than, ah, a noise. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so a lot of people like to believe that UFOs, the paranormal, and cryptids are all connected. Do you think that they're connected, or do you think that they're all separate entities themselves? Well, not specifically one entity, but different circles of entities, if you want to even call them entities, like you were saying. Well, um, again, I think that I can't say for sure whether they're the same entity. There's that idea out there, the trickster, that it's all the same kind of trickster entities appearing in different ways. Again, that's a leap. That's like saying it's a dead soldier. We don't have enough information to make that jump. So I do, do you think it's separate then? Well, I, I think whatever allows us to experience it, whatever facilitates these sightings is the same. There's some kind of psychedelic, psychological, uh, chemical trigger, neurological trigger that allows us to interact with these entities. Now, whether these Bigfoot ha is here for his own objectives, he's here to get peanut butter jars and watermelons, um, and the aliens are here to suck blood out of cows and anally probe people. <laughs> Possibly. It does, it does seem that they do have different objectives and different concepts. Then you have fucking uh, Jeff the Talking Mongoose doing God knows what, whatever his objective was, which just seemed to be fucking with people. So, <laughs> so again, that's why it's really easy to lean into the, that trickster idea is because it's easy to look at all of these pieces of information, all of this essentially, again, nonsense, not negative nonsense, just nonsense, and be like, ah, oh, well, it's, you know, it's one thing fucking with us, or it's all just made up nonsense. But it's it's something happening. <laughs> Something's going on. And there are these trends. You have things like the Oz factory. You have things like the these weird feelings and vibes, psychic impressions, some people want to call it, um, that seem to always be associated with these um experiences again whether you're seeing the Loch Ness monster or you're seeing Bigfoot or you're seeing a ghost do you, you have these kind of effects and again they're pretty similar to some psychedelic effects so that's a, an objective observation we can make and say there is some connection between these entities but I don't want to say that they're all on the same team or that they're like the same guy, you know, just fucking with us again. Maybe I think when it comes to theories, like 
uh, we were saying earlier with B theory, theories that are valuable, the trickster theory is probably the most valuable. That's the first one I'd run it through is, is this just something fucking with me? Because nine out, nine out of 10 times it works. And you're like, yeah, probably that. Yep. I could see that this is all some weird cosmic joke. Um, <laughs> and a, a lot of it does come off like a cosmic joke. I chalk it up to Eris, goddess of chaos, but whatever you prefer. Um, <clears throat> but again, it's just one of many theories you, you consider when doing these things the reason the trickster theory is a good one though is it helps you dismiss a lot of that demonic evil shit you know what i mean even the like most evil entities really only ended up fucking with some people for a bit (laughs) you know realistically you look at it from a broader standpoint Uh Mm -hmm. you know they levitated the children yeah that's fucking scary but same you with know, possessing somebody too. Yeah, it's not like they eviscerated the kid and then strangled the other kid with the one kid's intestines and you know blood all over. No, nothing like that ever fucking happens. Um, people that do that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's other humans who do all those that horrible shit. The the phenomenon in general is is like it, it's tricky. It, it it seems to be mischievous. I think is a good adjective. Um, but again, I, I hesitate to attribute all of that phenomenon to, you know, all of the entities, because when it comes to UFOs, you have things like cattle mutilations, where that is definitely a dark, um, you know, area, a dark thing that occurs to, to these creatures, you know, you don't see a mutilated cow in these cases and be like oh it was a peaceful death <laughs> no, you're, it definitely that cow definitely sh- was not enjoying its its final moments and so there are some darker aspects to the to the phenomenon um but again it's it's a phenomenon that is operating outside of a human morality kind of construct right it's and that's one of my biggest red flags for analyzing paranormal information when it ever gets to like the good aliens versus the bad aliens you've gone too far (laughs) if you're ever reading someone and that third theory gets to that point be like okay well this guy's he's he's writing fan fiction (laughs) because we we don't know their motives we just don't um you know stephen greer thinks they're all here for good and love and light and gonna raise our vibrations and save us but if that was the case they wouldn't be taking people in the middle of the night performing sexual experiments on them without their consent (laughs) that's just not it's not again they murder people's cattle they're not paying for that cows you could they could buy one if they were here you know benevolently we would trade them cows if they wanted cows um but no there's these thefts and things like that that they're operating outside of our understanding and our simple constructs of you know one plus one equals two whatever they're doing is something weird um when it ties back to biocentrism my personal kind of pet theory of why they like to collect spunk and eggs and 
cow viscera um, <laughs> is if it if we do live in a biocentric universe and biocentrism is a key part of what creates reality, then we'd have to rethink what space travel is because you wouldn't be traveling from planet to planet. You would be traveling from bubble of observed reality to bubble of observed reality. You would have these empty spaces, which we do have called dark matter in the universe where they're just not observed. There's nothing living around there. So the pieces of, of material haven't been observed. And so there aren't physical. And so traveling to different bubbles of reality perhaps requires the biological material to observe said reality. And so the, <laughs> the short end of it is the flying saucers don't run on bees. They run on spunk. <laughs> it's come. <laughs> they put your cum in the thing and it teleports you to earth. Like each gallon of cum is an earth teleport or something like that. Um, and, you know, the aliens use the fucking reptilian cum to go to the reptilian world. <laughs> and it, it's all it's all come teleportation. Um, that's my personal side theory on why they collect that material. If the biocentric reality is real, but again, that's a top-down theory. It's fun. It's a good story, but it's it theoretically be almost like a magnet. If you're looking at it from that concept. Right. It, it somehow having that material allows them to view our reality or exist in our reality. Um, and again, that could be true in a physical sense. They could physically be traveling, but it also explains all the weird psychedelic consciousness related phenomenon that seems to be associated with paranormal encounters. So theoretically, too, they almost could be taking that for the aspect of trying to like reproduce whatever species they come in contact with. Right. So they might just, yeah, they might have a, uh, it might be putting a little fetus in a vat and the fetus can... doesn't want a space odyssey. Yeah, a exactly. Little, little the fetus, yeah. Generates the reality. Maybe, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to say Strieber, but that's not right. Um, uh, um, Biffin, cut this out. Cut, cut it, cut it, cut it. <laughs> um, uh, guy who did 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, um, Stanley Kubrick? Kubrick, Kubrick, Kubrick. Thank you. I was getting caught up on my ass. Uh, yeah, everyone says he filmed the moon landing. Maybe he was secretly telling us about the spunk theory <laughs> that it is just babies for teleportation. Yeah, I mean, he has been pretty on point with a lot of things, like even looking at Eyes Wide Shut, for example, mm -hmm. or uh, A Clockwork Orange talking about MK Ultra. Like, uh -huh. he was letting us in on some shit. Absolutely. <laughs> but I guess before we start wrapping up here, man, one thing I always like to do is words of wisdom for my guest. So, is there any words of wisdom you'd like to leave the listeners with? Um, yeah, it would be don't be afraid of the unknown. Um, it's, it's just fucking with you, you know? It's, <laughs> not uh it's not as dangerous as it seems um i can count the number of you know people killed by ufos on one hand 
Um, and those those cases are unconfirmed. Allegedly. So, <laughs> Let's bring back to that. Yeah, word. there's a lot of allegedly's in there. Um, so again, it's it's something that there's a truth to it. Um, and like most stories that are are told and told again and again, there's um, there's a where there's smoke, there's a little bit of fire, and that doesn't mean everything's true. Most of it isn't true, <laughs> but there is, there's a reason why people believe things. And if you take the time to find that out, then you'll, you'll find some shit out. Oh, that's for sure. So before we get going here, why don't you drop your plugs again? And uh, for anybody that's didn't catch it in the beginning and is now interested in looking into your books and the different research you're doing, well, I want you to drop all that information for them. Yeah, you can check um, check me out at Chaz of the Dead on all the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. Um, Chazofthedead.com, where you can find my podcast appearances and articles and stuff like that. Um, and the book is Paranormal Expeditions, Hunt for the Friendship. Um, it's a story of UFOs, Nazis, psychedelics, and an expedition to the edge of the world. Um, find that on Amazon or linked through my website. Um, yeah, check out all that stuff. Um, absolutely. I really appreciate you coming on today, man. And hopefully you uh, end up coming back on in the future. I'd love to hear from you again once you release all this information that you said you're working on. Um, if you're releasing it in book form too, I'd love to have you come back on and talk about the book. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to do that. This has been Inquiries of Our Reality. For everybody that's listening, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I hope you enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.